He is risen. He is risen. Amen. God is good. And all the time. I'm not even joking, though. He is good, though. And that's what we're going to actually think about today. We're going to think about the goodness of God in this song. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Psalms chapter 27. Psalms chapter 27. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and somebody will, in the aisle, will pass you one. I see a gentleman down here. Uh, my name is Jeremy McLean. I'm one of the pastors at ARC, and um, it's a pleasure to bring God's word to you all today. We'll be looking at a psalm this Sunday, Psalm 27, and then I think next Sunday, Jahil will continue in Timothy, and then again, we'll hit another psalm. This psalm was written by King uh, David. The occasion and particular time is not known to us. But we get a sense that this psalm was written in a time of distress and in a time of, of great need. And so we, as we look at this psalm, we, we're asking the Lord to teach us how, how we could wait for him, how, how we should wait for him in times of distress and in times of, when times get hard. Waiting is a difficult thing to do. If you're waiting for something good, you could suffer from anticipation and time feel like it's teasing you. If you're waiting for something that's bad, every, time, every tick feels like a bomb is about to explode soon. And waiting for something for too long could actually make it not seem worthwhile for you anymore. So it's kind of like me when I ride past Ben's Chili Bowl. I, I want to get something and I look at the line and say, that I, I, I just lost my appetite. The line is just too long. I just don't want to wait for it. That's, that's what waiting does. It has, waiting has a variety of temptations. But waiting is an ability that every person that wants to follow the Lord must learn. Because his timing is not like our timing. His ways are not like our ways. And so much of our life is spent waiting on the Lord waiting on him to act on our behalf, which is waiting for him to come and bring us to himself. Waiting is the posture of the Christian. So we need to learn from this passage how to wait on him and how to be strong and of good courage while we wait. So that's what we're going to learn today. Follow along as I read. Of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we cast all our hope on you even right now. We ask that you would not turn your face from us, but send forth your truth, send forth your grace, and allow us to understand your word. Apply it to our hearts so that we could live with you and dwell with you and experience a joy that is full and everlasting. But God, we want to come to you and ask that you remove any distractions that are in our minds right now that, keep, that may keep us from hearing your word. Any bitterness that's in our hearts, any anger, any anxieties, any frustrations, any jealousy or covetousness, said to draw near to you, to purify ourselves, to cleanse our dirty hands and to draw near to you and you would draw near to us. Draw near to us, we pray. Amen. Again, this psalm doesn't have a title, but we get from verse 12 that it's a time when people are going against David. David was a king, a great king, and the history of Israel, and he had had many accomplishments while Israel was under his rule. He, made, he had conquered many different nations, and he had brought a time of great peace and prosperity while he was ruling. But along with that prosperity and peace came some times of trouble, that in times of trouble always come when you are being led by the Lord, right? Because the Lord has enemies against him, and if you're with the Lord, then you're going to have enemies against you. And so he always, he constantly found himself in the midst of some type of distress. And we see that in verse 12, that this distress took the form of false witnesses rising against him and breathing out violence. And we don't know who the enemies are, but they're trying to bring down his name and corrupt 
his reputation, and they're breathing out violence, right? So they want to hurt his body as well. They want to destroy him. And in verse 6, we see that the enemies were not just a small band of people, but they were around him. That's why he says that he wants that his head will be lifted up above the enemies around him. David had his back against the wall. He humanly had nowhere to go. The situation, in man's perspective, would have looked dark. No place to escape. And if he could escape, he had no shelter to run to. But that's if his hope and if his shelter was in the things of this world. David said, however, that his hope and his shelter was not in this world, but it was in the Lord. That's why in, verses, in verse 1, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And again, he says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Notice he uses all caps. This is not insignificant. Whenever we see the Lord in all caps, it's referring not only to God being God, right, the creator over all and the ruler over all, but it's, it's, it's showing a, that the Lord has a, a personal relationship with that person, a particular people. It's his name, Jehovah, and he told his name was Jehovah, said his name was Jehovah when he had made a covenant to care for his people, to dwell with them and to be their God. David says his Lord. Now some any, everybody in this room could say Matt, and the whole room could say that Matt is a father, but only four people could say Matt is my father. Yeah. And it's those four people that he has the increased responsibility to love and to nurture and to teach and to guide. And so David says the Lord is not just the Lord, but he said he's my Lord and he's my light and my salvation and my stronghold. He takes ownership of this wonderful God, because God has taken ownership of him. Darkness typically represents despair, death, or distress, and so this is not easy to understand. What, it's not difficult to understand what light means. Light is the image of what is good in this situation. Light is the relief of this stress. And all of these terms are, are basically showing some type of relief, and so salvation is the deliverance or the rescue from the enemies. Stronghold, that's a fortification, that's protection, that's a shield from all of the enemy's attacks. So he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation and my stronghold. And so who shall he fear? He asked that question, but it's a statement, right? It's, he says, who shall he fear? At the end of verse 1, whom shall I be afraid, David says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Lord owns the cattle on the thousand hills. The Lord is in control of the sun and the stars. The Lord is the one who's from everlasting to everlasting, meaning he's indestructible, immortal. I mean, immortal, eternal, everlasting. He set the mountains in place. People can't even scale the mountains. And he set them in place. He formed them. How much power does the Lord have to be able to form the mountains? 
There's no power that can compare to his. There's no wisdom that can compare to his. He designed the the world, and he now sustains it and directs it by his word. And every heart of every person is in the palm of God's hands. Who shall David fear? Who shall we fear? The Lord is his light and his salvation and his stronghold. And so if the Lord, if we say the Lord is ours and the Lord says we are his, then we can walk in this same confidence because God is this for us and so much more. When the world is crumbling around us, listen, we have no reason to fear. I like choirs on a low. And one of my favorite gospel hymns is God Is. He said, God is the joy and the strength of my life, moves all pain, misery and strife, promised to keep me, never to leave me. He never comes short of his word. I got to fast and pray, stay in a narrow way, keep my life clean every day. I want to go with him when he comes back. Come too far, I never turn back. And then it says, what? God is my all and all. Don't get all snooty talking about, oh, they talking about works because he said, I got to fast and pray, stay in the narrow way. He says that in, in the text in verse 11. He says, teach me your way and guide me. Anybody who knows the Lord is their salvation, their life wants to walk in his way. And God is our all in all if we've come to him. So we should be confident, confident Christians, confident Christians. What keeps us from being confident? What keeps you from being confident? Have you looked at your own strength a little bit too much? Have you looked at your adversaries or the difficulty a little bit too much? How would you know if your confidence was in yourself or in something else? One of the ways you know is when you begin to become doubtful, become anxious, become scared, become angry. Because you're not putting your strength in the Lord. When the Lord is our strength, we could be confident and we could take heart. So we should share the gospel with confidence if the Lord is for us, since the Lord is for us. (laughs) We should love our neighbors with confidence. We should parent with confidence. We should be in our marriages with confidence. Expecting God to do good things within our marriages and in whatever context we're in, relationship within. And look, we should, we should go on job interviews with confidence. Y'all go on job interviews with confidence. I, I'm not a name and claim and preacher, right? I didn't say claim the job for yourself. I said go with confidence. There's a difference. If you go with confidence, you're like, you're like the Hebrew boys that say, listen, if, if, God wants to just, if, if God's going to save me, he's going to save me. If God's not going to save me, he's not going to save me. But I'm still going to stand here, and I'm not going to bow down. 
when you go in confidence, you go like Esther, and you say, listen, if I perish, I perish. But look, I'm going before the king. And when you go in that job interview, or when you share the gospel, when you go into the doctor's office, you go with confidence. Because God is your light and your salvation and your strength. So maybe I am a name and claim preacher, actually. Because <laughs> I want everybody to claim the Lord as their light and their salvation and their deliverance. Claim him and then walk in confidence as you wait for the Lord. And take good courage. And we also take courage, right, as we draw near to the Lord. So we reflect on who he is for us. But we also draw near to him. And so verses 4 to 11 begins, says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Here we see David saying, over and above all else, please let me be in your presence and reside in your glory. That's what he wanted most. And at that time, the glory of God would take the form of a cloud, right, and would fill a particular place. And that place would be called the house of God. And it was at that house where certain people could meet the Lord and experience his presence in a more felt, perceived, kind of realized way. And David said, I want to get to this house and be in his presence. I want to gaze upon his Lord. I want to be with him. And in verse 5 and 6, follow along, he says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Here again, we see the bold confidence of what what he expects the Lord to do. But listen, he asked, but he wants to be in his shelter with the Lord. He wants to be in his tent. And even... When the Lord brings him deliverance and lifts him over the enemies, he, he don't want to go and say, all right, God, thanks for that deliverance. No, he said, I want us to go back in the tent and with sacrifices of shouts of joy, and I want to sing to the Lord. He don't want to be away from him. David resolved to be in the presence of God. In verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face I will seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father my mother hath forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. He says, be gracious to me. David knows that he... He has some sin in himself. He knows that he shouldn't be dwelling in the, in the presence of the Lord. And it's only by God's grace that he'll be able to draw near. And he says, 
Lord, you told me to seek your face, and face is just another way of saying presence. And he said, you told me to seek your face. You told me to, to, to draw near to your presence. Now, Lord God, I, I'm, I, now that's what I'm doing. I'm drawing near to you. Be gracious to me. Let that happen. In this relationship, he says he desires it more than human relationships, more than, more than parents' relationship to a children. So he says, though parents forsake him or, or are separated from him, some how? That his chief hope is that the Lord will take him in. And see, he wants to be in the presence of God. And being in the presence of God also means walking with God. So that's why he says in, in, in verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. David knows something about what it is to be in the presence of God. He's on to something. Listen to this brief, this brief uh, article. It said, now that I live closer to the water, it's still a treat. Whether it's an hour spent watching the water or a, full day, or a full day staycation with all the paraphernalia, I still get the same feeling. It's where I go when stress and routine and worry that comes with everyday life just gets to be too much. It's where I go to be still and just listen to the water into myself. It's where I can get best here that it's where I could best hear this little voice inside that tells me to close my eyes, breathe and relax. The water and the seagulls and the laughing children splashing on the shore combine into a soothing symphony and the waves carry my stress out to the sea. It's where I regain my faith and recharge my batteries and the title of this article is Why Going to the Beach is Everything. Why going to the beach is everything. Now, I'm not knocking the beach, though I don't like them. (laughs) But what I'm saying is that if the presence of the beach can be relaxing and can bring some level of joy and remove stress from this person's life, why exchange the glory of God for the glory of creation? What do you think that the presence of God could do if you're in his presence. David was on to something. David knew that the presence of the Lord is what he needed to revive his heart. Better was one day in his course than a thousand elsewhere. And the presence of God is the fullness of joy. At his right hand are blessings forevermore. David wanted to get to the house and dwell with the Lord. He's on to something. You see, man was created to live in the presence of God and to bask in his beauty. To enjoy his glory. God's glory is our satisfaction. His glory is what brings us delight when we're in his presence. That's how we were wired. I know this based on the creation account. Because when God created Adam and Eve, and when there was no sin in the world or in our hearts, God lived among them and walked with them. And they enjoyed his presence and benefited from his goodness. And as long as they obeyed him, had babies, and cared for the land, 
the presence of the God, the presence of God and the glory of God would have spread throughout the world unhindered. And every single person would have lived in God's presence and would have enjoyed his beauty and would have been satisfied with him. But Adam disobeyed God. And through that sin, through his sin, sin entered into the world. And now our hearts are blind to his glory. We run away from him willingly from his presence. And we're separate from God. So Isaiah 59, 2 said, our sin has made a separation between us and God. And he has now hidden his face from us. And this separation is a result of sin and is a judgment for sin. But praise be to God, he's a God of grace and mercy, right? So throughout, he's now created ways that even though we don't deserve to be in his presence, he brings his presence to us instead. And he, and he, and he, and he did it at one point in, in tents. And so Moses would have this tent and the Lord would bring his presence to the people of Israel in the form of a cloud, and that glory would dwell in that tent. And therefore, when people came near to that tent, when the glory of God was there, then they would be in his presence. God was graciously restoring his presence to his people. And then in the time of King David, right, the same thing, the glory of the Lord would similarly come down in a specific place. God was bringing himself to his people to dwell with his people because that's how it was intended to be from the beginning of time. And that is what is, and that's how we were, were meant to. That's what we were meant to be in his presence. But again, we can't just be in his presence because of sin. Because of sin, we can't be in his presence without a sacrifice. And that's why in verse 6, David says that he will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. So being in God's presence is our number one need. And David was in his presence at the tent through and with the right sacrifices. And that's how he was going to enjoy his presence. Now, how do we enjoy the presence of God? How do we get there since that's our soul's delight? Well, that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. The beauty of the gospel says that the greatest manifestation of God's glory was in the person of Jesus. Jesus was the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And Jesus, in his glory, came and dwelled among men. And the world did not perceive it. The world did not know his glory because of the sinfulness of the world and, the, and its brokenness. But that's why he came. And he walked and he lived a perfect life. And then he went to the cross and he laid down his life as a sacrifice so that all who would come to Jesus would be able to come to the Father and be able to be in his presence forever. A lot of times when we think of salvation, we think of like a burning house and and, 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 and Jesus puts, and the Lord puts a ladder in the house, and then you grab the ladder by faith. The ladder is Jesus, and he pulls you out, and, no longer, and you're no longer in the burning house. And 
That's not all salvation is. The chief aim of salvation is not just to pull you out of hell, but to pull you to God. So he says that he brought us, 1 Peter 3.18 says that the Lord brought us, Jesus brought us to God. Now we can actually be near him, be with him. Colossians 121 says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus brings, our, brings us to God. Jude 124, now to him, speaking of Jesus, who was able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, is the way that we can be in the presence of God's glory. And it's the only way. And so if, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, that means you will not receive your soul's delight. You will not be able to dwell in his presence. And matter of fact, you will dwell away from his presence in condemnation, in hell. And that's not worth it. Christ paid the price. He accomplished the work. You come to him, and he brings you to God. Come to Christ by faith and turn from your sin. No, don't put any strength, don't put any strength in yourself. Don't put any confidence in the things that you can do. Don't be confident in your own righteousness or your own works. Let Christ be your strength. Let Christ be your salvation. Let Christ be your light. And he will bring you to God and you could be in his presence. Isn't that beautiful? I think that's what David's talking about when he says that the the beauty of the Lord. The gospel of God is so beautiful. The only reason that the world don't see its beauty is because of its blindness sin. We know stuff like this is beautiful. Think of Beauty and the Beast. Box office hit. Everybody thinks Beauty and the Beast is lovely. Right? Well, you should if you don't. But listen, what we got in Beauty and the Beast, right? We got this, this man who, I don't know his name. Let's call him a beast. He wasn't a beast at first, though. He is a beastly of a man. He had a bad heart, and so because of his whatever, pride or wickedness, they decided to turn him into a beast. He was a hard man, a beastly of a man. Nobody wanted to be around him. And then you got this girl named Dale. Bell, Dale, Bell. And listen, 
I'm glad all y'all seen it. <laughs> Baal comes with her grace and her kindness, and she goes and she begins to love on this unlovable beast. And now this beast's heart begins to melt because she loves him. And the requirement for the beast to no longer be a beast is for him to love somebody and for somebody to genuinely love him. And so she comes with her grace and she woos him and she loves him unconditionally in spite of his ugliness. And then he, who's not used to loving, loves her back. And then he's restored to this image. That's beautiful. Everybody knows it's beautiful. And that's just a dim picture of the gospel. Because we are ugly, worn out, torn up, busted, disgusted people. Beastly hearts. And the Lord in his goodness and his kindness and his grace came and loved the unlovable. That's us. And he loved us to the extent where he laid down his life for us. Now, how can you say beauty and the beast is lovely and not say the gospel is lovely? The only reason the world don't see the loveliness of the gospel is because it's blind to it. Because they don't want to see themselves as the beast. But you got to see yourself as the beast before you can be restored to the image that you were meant to be. What I'm saying is admit that you are a sinner. Embrace the beauty of this gospel. Admit that you are a sinner. Put your faith in him. Love Christ back and be restored. It's a beautiful thing. And you know, the story wouldn't have been beautiful if after he became a a man, they lived apart from each other. (laughs) That would not have been happily ever after. But what makes it great is that they didn't live together, right? That's the beauty of the gospel. We get to live with God and share in his glory because he first loved us. Accept this gospel and dwell in his presence forever. And the way that we, listen, the way that we as Christians, if you have placed your faith in Christ and now you have been brought into the presence of God, the way that we now abide in his presence, right? It's by abiding in Christ. And that's what John 15 tells us. John 15 says if we abide in Christ, abide in his word, then we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit and we will be filled with joy. What this abiding looks like, us going to his word, listening to him, following him. This abiding in Christ, right, coming to his house, abiding in his presence means us gathering together and singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another and encouraging each other with the word. That's how we abide in his presence. We abide in his presence in our small groups and when we encourage each other with truth and we abide in his presence as we serve and as we go forth and declare the gospel. That's abiding in the presence of God. 
And as we abide in his presence, he begins to fill us up more and more and more. So after we've come to him, we have to keep on coming to him. We have to keep on seeking his face. And we have to do it in humble prayer also. That's what David does. He seeks his face and he prays to the Lord. And the more and more you abide with Jesus, the more and more you will have confidence that you will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so in verse 12, it says, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violent threats. And in verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He knows it. He wants it. And he knows it will happen for him by God's strength. God is the one that has to keep him from his adversaries, from his enemies. And as he abides with the Lord, the Lord will take care of him. And will preserve him and will bring him to that happy land. Now, that land for David was back in the capital, in Jerusalem. And the goodness of the Lord was when God would prosper them again. But our land is a better land. Our land is the land, the new Jerusalem, that we read about in Revelation, where there's no more tears, where there's no more death, where there's no more pain where God dwells amongst us in his fullness and where we can live with him forevermore. If I put this passage in, 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 I guess, in Paul's terms in Colossians, Paul would say, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Then it says, Christ who, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. In the first part of this passage in Psalms 27, when he says, the Lord is my light, my salvation, my stronghold, he's saying the Lord is his life. And then in the middle of the passage, when he's asking asking to, to dwell in the presence of the Lord, that's him seeking the things that are above where Christ is. And then later on in the passage, when he says, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living and wait for the Lord and be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He's saying, I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's saying... When Christ appears, then he will appear with him in glory. This passage teaches us how to wait on the Lord, to be encouraged, and to trust in Christ. We can do that if we have Christ in our life. We have already tasted the goodness of the Lord in Jesus. And since we've tasted the goodness, let that taste satisfy you until you are fully feast on him in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly God, we ask that you would encourage our souls and 
remind us that your love is better than life. And that your presence is better than life. That your presence is our life. And that we should desire over and above above all things to be with you, to know you, and to live with you forever. Let that be our encouragement in hard times. I pray that we would encourage one another with this great hope until we see you face to face. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.